Attention all you Psychobabble listeners. Psychobabble will be back next week with more from Erica and Kyle. Now, stay tuned for a special edition of UCI Conversations covering the Reverend Jesse Jackson's appearance at UCI's Barclay Theater earlier this afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, a.k.a. Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. All right. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. Welcome to this special edition of UCI Conversations. This is a real-time follow-up to the Barclay Theater Chancellor's event held at noon today. The event was titled Charlottesville, A Defining Moment in America, A Conversation with the Reverend Jesse Jackson. My guests today are two people who shared the stage with Reverend Jackson. They are T. Michael Rambo, an actor, orator, and activist affiliated with the University of Minnesota, who also wowed the crowd with his amazing baritone singing and a few dance steps thrown in, and he touched our souls. And Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor of Law at UCI, who Reverend Jackson referred to as Hurricane Michelle, and who moderated the discussion. Welcome, Michelle and Michael. How are you today? Excellent. Thank Thank you so very much for having us on your show, Kevin. It's a real pleasure, and it was an incredible honor to have Reverend Jackson with us today and the community come out. It was lovely. Yeah, I concur. I I think that to see the response and to hear um, how celebratory and how supportive the UCI community is and continues to be for issues and concerns of this sort. Yes, and a big shout out to Orange County because not only did we have our Zot Zot Anteaters, alumni, student, faculty, and staff, but we had participants who came from throughout Orange County and beyond, actually down from L.A. too. In fact, one of Reverend Jackson's high school classmates was there uh, today with his wife. So it was really tremendous for us. This event sold out in less than three days and with a wait list of over 200 more people who had hoped to be with us. So I was happy that so many could live stream. Thank you so much, everybody who participated in this. And it was really quite amazing when you think of it and to celebrate uh, this experience, but also to check in with the fact to kind of piggyback what Michelle said. Uh, we have our law enforcement officers that were there from the university. Oh, they're so wonderful. And a shout out to them. Uh, uh, Chief Cisneros was just wonderful. Yeah, they're in support. <laughs> and without doubt, we cannot forget, and we certainly appreciated the presence of Reverend Cohen, yes. Rabbi Rabbi Mm -hmm. Cohn. Rabbi Cohn was just fabulous. In fact, he uh, serves on Planned Parenthood's board of directors. He is a stalwart promoter uh, of women and defender of their rights. And he was 
just absolutely uh, wonderful to share the stage with. He's a, he's a really he's a man who's been honored actually by many different faith communities in Orange County and beyond because his message, much like Dr. King, has been beyond one issue. You know, Dr. King was asked in 1966 after giving a speech in Wisconsin at one mm-hmm. of the campuses and a reporter said, well, you know, you're talking about something more than civil rights. What? Why? Are you? And, and Dr. King's response to this, as if he should be limited to one issue, it was basically that all of humanity concerns him. All of rights concern him. He is that his humanity leads him to think beyond the narrow confines of mm-hmm. just one particular area and that he would give his energy and voice to more than that, to poverty, to uplifting women, to the fight against the war in Vietnam and so much more. And I think that's reflective in the gentleman whom I had the opportunity to share the stage with today, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Rabbi Hillel Cohn. Thank you very much. Michelle, before we continue, for those of our listeners who may be too young, they may be international students, could you please edify the audience of who the Reverend Jesse Jackson is? Uh, it's it's a pleasure to do so, and and it's and thank you so much for the opportunity. Reverend Jackson describes himself as having been born in the slums, but not of the slums, and along his path of of activism at a very young age, had the opportunity to work with, be close to, and mentored by Dr. King. I think that many people don't know how central he was to Dr. King and Dr. King to him. And today we had the opportunity to show many of the pictures, or at least some, of of Reverend Jackson and Dr. King. He is of the King School. He was his protege. And after the assassination of Dr. King and also Robert Kennedy, he really stood then in the place of harmonizing America in moving forward an agenda about peace mm-hmm. and equality and an agenda about equality that extended beyond just one community. Um, many people might know him as part of the CE that he is the CEO of the Rainbow Co- Push uh, coalition. And as he describes, it was a rainbow because he cared about women's rights and he fought for them, Mm -hmm. uh, cared about LGBT rights. A lot of people don't know that. He Mm -hmm. was one of the first persons of the political space to speak out about how important it was to embrace our gay brothers and sisters and also to get funding and fight for a cure for HIV and AIDS at a time when politicians were just saying, let them die homosexuality is a sin and it's a shame. I mean, there were members of Congress saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, before President Ronald Reagan turned around on the issue, he too was a part of that. And it was Reverend Jesse Jackson singularly saying they are our brothers and our sisters and they deserve compassion. We should not look down on them. There is no justification for looking down on someone except to lift them up. And that was his response to HIV and, and AIDS. And so I think for many of Americans, it's possible to not understand how central he was to fastening peace and equality throughout the 70s and the 80s. And if I could, I would express the following. To think about the ways in which streets were exploding, Watts and so forth, after the death of Dr. King and the the upset about Vietnam, he was a unifier. 
He truly was a unifier. And the very fact that in the 1970s, we don't have those moments that we had in the 60s. This was a person who was on the ground working with people mm-hmm. in education. There's one uh, image that we showed today, and it's of him on Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, he And for some people, they might have seen that as too much. But in many ways, the ground he forged, the communities that he reached out to, paved the way for a campaign that could be taken up by someone named Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Pave the way for someone who would be a Hillary Clinton and take and have a legitimate campaign. He won in 1988. He came in in 46 of the 50 some odd primaries. He came in first or second. A lot of Americans don't remember that, but that says so much for that time in mm-hmm. 1988. And here is what's amazing. In the states that voted for Donald Trump, like Wisconsin and whatnot, there were droves of people who came out to support him in 84 and 88. Mm. And here I'm not talking about African Americans. I'm talking about working class white people. I was at one of those events in 1988, and I was up in the high rafters. In the place, it was an arena that was full of people who were just chanting his name. And the thing that they said when they had an opportunity to speak is that they remembered that he was there for them in the 1970s for the people who are working in the unions. They remember that he came Mm -hmm. out demanding better wages, better working conditions and whatnot. And this was not at a time when he was running for office at all. Mm -hmm. He was just doing what he said was just the right thing to do. How did the event come together? Well, this event was born out of my sense that it has been very important for us to take note of and to think about this moment that we're in, and that is the rise of hate in an era of political turmoil. And we see it, and we saw it before Charlottesville. And in fact, today's event, Reverend Jackson got involved with us a week ago. I called him up and I said, we need you to come out. Because we had planned a year-long colloquium series tying together from 2017. This is the 70th anniversary of the doctor's trials at Nuremberg. So the horrors of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. This marks the 70th anniversary. 2018 marks the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. So we thought having a series of conversations would be so important. And then Heather Heyer was murdered. The events in Charlottesville. And the real need to have a voice that we could reach out to Mm -hmm. who has been there and could help us understand what does this moment convey for us as children are going back to school, as young adults are going back to school. What a time to go back to school where there are so many who are even 16, 17. So many questions. How to understand this moment, a moment in which we're turning people away from our borders, and yet we say that we're a melting pot. Mm-hmm. We want to celebrate a statute of liberty, and yet at the same time, we're pushing people away. And we're claiming that in the United States, we have no room for the people who want the very same opportunities that generations ago were given to the people, you know, whose forebears came here. So this all came out of the urgency to have this conversation. Today was a wonderful event because we had that with Reverend Jackson and with Rabbi Cohn, and I was so grateful, and with T. Michael Rambo, who started us off with an incredible rendition of 
ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. He ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. He ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I got to keep on walking, I keep on talking, marching up the king's highway. Oh, it 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 was it just sent it chills up people's spines. It was was really beautiful. It Thank you so much it for being with us. It was great to be us. present for that. It was great to see the the depth of community celebrating that song, acknowledging the power of it. And it was asked, should we keep the lights up? And I was very adamant, wanting everyone to see each other's reaction. And what happened quite naturally is that people began to to clap in unison, joining the rhythm of a song about community and about civil rights and about not turning back and about moving forward with hope and with promise and possibility. And it was just really very powerful. And, you know, and on that note, too, of the power of that, and, and Reverend Jackson spoke to this, the kind of arbitrariness of how people are labeled. He said, what is this thing about Orange County that people keep saying, well, you know, you are in Orange County? He said, you know, what does that mean? And he said there were the Lincoln Republicans who were responsible for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. These were the liberating laws. These are the laws that liberated black people in the United States from slavery. Mm-hmm. And so this it is not about Democratic or Republican in that way. It is about doing the right thing, as he emphasized today. And that really is so important. And I think part of what we saw is that Orange County really is a space where people truly do care about these issues. Mm -hmm. I've been inspired by living in this community amongst so many people who joined with the university and its mission, its mission of educating all people. You know, we're a campus that has one of the highest percentages of first-generation Americans, and they graduate from UCI having jobs. I mean, the ratio, I think the New York Times for the last few years in a row have said, UCI takes students, more students, who are who have had those types of backgrounds than any other elite institution or institution at all, and better than any other institution, including the most elite Ivies, transforming the lives of these young people where they leave not only with jobs in hand and great salaries, but they leave with a sense of dignity, yeah. a sense of integrity, a sense of pride in their institution because they know that this is an institution that always respected them and embraced them and never treated them as second-class citizens. I think there's something very special in that message about UCI, and, uh, and I embrace it, and, and I certainly appreciate it. Michael and Michelle, please excuse me for a moment. In case you joined us late, I am with Michael Rambo and Michelle Goodwin, who hosted the Reverend Jesse Jackson at a special Chancellor's speaking engagement today at UCI. And we are just visiting and finding out about what their perceptions of this afternoon were. So I'm so happy that they're here. We're so happy to be on your show, Kevin. Thank you so much for for taking this opportunity. You're welcome. How about in terms of one of the discussions that came out of Charlottesville are the Confederate statues. Yes. Can you please tell me, I am discovering for myself things that I didn't know. I I must say, as a white man, when I have gone into parks and seen Confederate statues, I must say that 
I've enjoyed them as a something that's kind of retro. It's it it that it, you might see in a museum. Yeah, it calls to the past. It's like something kind of dusty, and there's something American about the Civil War. It was a good story. It was a good end that was revolutionary for our country. Yet. I was always a little unsettled. In fact, I've talked to a few of my friends and we, uh, who have said, yeah, it's, there was something a little like, huh, that's the Confederate sh- soldiers and they lost the war. What is that about? And yet this reverence. Yeah. Well, you know, that's an excellent question. Uh, and, it's, and it's worth a series of conversations mm-hmm. just on that. Mm-hmm. Because what's important to know is that many of those who were... Um, who are most celebrated now of the Confederacy, articulated during their lifetime after the Civil War that they did not want these statutes of, of them anywhere. They said, you know, we need to move on now. Um, we did not win, acknowledging mm. that it was not a win. Mm. But even more important than whether they wanted statutes of themselves mm-hmm. uh, or, stat- or, or not statues mm-hmm. of themselves, mm-hmm. what is important to note is that for the vast majority of these iconic statues of reverence to these gentlemen who lost the war, they were not erected prior to the Civil War. They were not erected during the Civil War. They were not erected right after the Civil Mm. War. These monuments were erected in the 1920s and the 1930s in the United States and thereafter during uh, the most vicious times of Jim Crow. This was during the period in which there were inordinate lynchings of black men, women and children and i was getting to the children Mm. yes absolutely in fact sometimes they were strung up at in fact these monuments or right outside of the monuments these monuments thus play uh, a significant role in violence and hatred in the united states they were actually not born of a sense of let's reflect back and learn from that period of time not at all in fact what's very unique about what the united states has done not like any other country you will not see this kind of reverence in germany Mm -hmm. to hitler Mm -hmm. and to the third reich you will not see the glorification of Third Reich soldiers in, uh, right? And when you think about slavery, slavery was an institution in the United States where killing your slave was totally permissible. Killing your slave, raping your slave, selling your slave, uh, uh, raping a nine or ten year old girl or a boy was all, it was all, that was, that was our institution. And now it's sort of, okay, let's celebrate what that represented. Who are we? And what is very interesting on the point about understanding our history, because I do, I do very much think that understanding our history is absolutely important. We've not put these statues in, uh, in places of open museums or whatnot where they could be understood in context. Not at all. In fact, in Virginia, you will not find near the Confederate uh, monument, you will not find the monument of people who helped to liberate slavery, who helped mm-hmm. to liberate it's with the Civil shy. War. Mm-hmm. No, it is not. So you so you have an incomplete. It would be as if Germany just had a bunch of monuments to the Third Reich and no one knew anything else and then it was just the Third Reich. And now let's just uh, kind of look at them More. and glor- and glorify mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so so it's really important to think about that when we see one, what else is around it? Mm-hmm. We've given them the prime real estate in the centers of our communities. Mm-hmm. We've fastened their names onto our children's schools. Mm-hmm. We have situated them and embedded them in front of our courthouses and municipal buildings. Mm-hmm. We've placed them in central, beautiful spaces of our parks. And when you think about it, what women of history have been provided those types of opportunities? Mm-hmm. What people who were the abolitionists mm-hmm. of slavery have been provided mm-hmm. that kind of real estate and landmark? Who were the people mm-hmm. who were the spies who were incredibly helpful with dismantling and courageous, and courageous in dismantling and fighting in the Civil War have been given that kind of real estate? They've mm-hmm. not. So we have to ask ourselves as a country, why is that? Mm. And what are we heralding and for what reason? Absolutely. And, and if we believe in a complete education, then we can at least come away from a conversation looking at that saying that we have not completely educated ourselves. Mm. Yes. Is it the same way with the, the Confederate flag? I mean, how, how, you know, personally for, for both of you, is that what, what does that conjure up? For so you? Th- I, I I love that you asked that, and mm-hmm. I love that we're having a conversation that's just plain and easy, yeah. right? Because yeah. uh, because I'm black and T. Michael is is black, mm-hmm. but the thing is, it must be something, and I do think it is for white Americans because there are white Americans who 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 risk their lives and who mm-hmm. died. They mm-hmm. too felt looking at those flags and at the monuments as if. It did not represent who they are. So the first thing that I would say is that we must see ourselves linked, that my pain should not be something that is only expressed and experienced by women or by black women, but that if something happens to me, that my whole community could say, no, we don't embrace that. That is that is wrong. So, so the first thing is I think that we have to come to a space where we can empathize and sympathize with each other to say that I am sentient enough and aware enough that I don't think that it's a good de- idea mm-hmm. and that it would hurt you if X or Y happened. So anyway... How do I see it? I see it as an opportunity in our country when we see these monuments and uh, and also these flags, not just to have the conversation, which I think the conversation and illuminating history is really important, really important for those who say, well, without these monuments, we won't know anything. I say this is the value of a book. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think of the historical contextualization of it all in the form in the in the environment that you spoke of and Kevin spoke of it in terms of museums and spaces where it can be placed in context that yes. that, that flag has a, a place in our history because it is connected to something that requires the conversation about how it came to be, how it mm-hmm. came to pass and what it represents. These you know, and and, and so we have to understand why it was post-slavery, the institutionalization of literally thousands of laws in the United States 
that uh, shackled people from being in harmony with each other. Do you know that there are cities in the United States post-slavery during after Reconstruction, so there was this glory period of Reconstruction where not only were blacks um, now freed from the bonds and bondage of slavery, they could vote, they could run for office, and so we actually had more elected African-American officials post-slavery than what we have had since. Wow. At, yes, in terms of federal office. and But there was a backlash. Mm-hmm. There was a backlash that was led by supremacist groups, white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan and others. And then there was just outright terrorism. And there was this plethora of lawmaking. See, during the time of slavery, you didn't have to make laws about black people and rights and what you could do or not do because they were slaves. You don't have to worry about it. You worry. And so this was actually post-slavery. Cities having codes that black people and white people couldn't play checkers together. So what you think about is just like mm-hmm. schooling and water fountains and swimming pools and parks, which are audacious and horrible enough. But in fact, we manufactured mm-hmm. such hatred and such... Mm-hmm arbitrary, ridiculous yeah. ways. So mm. it wasn't just so that, that you mm. couldn't love each other and get married, right? Mm. It was, don't play, we, we're going we're gonna to lock you up if we catch you playing check or checkers mm. or backgammon. Mm. Um, we're not going to allow black children to receive any books that white children have touched. Okay. have touched, right? Black people can't enter these libraries, right? Um, that black kids can't swim in these pools. We'll shut down all the pools, we'll shut down the parks, we'll shut down the schools when the courts tell us that they must integrate. This, uh, These are important parts, not just of my history, this is the history of our country. Mm-hmm. We must be aware of that history so that otherwise... When individuals say, well, what are folks complaining so much about? Can't they just get over it? I think part of that response is the fact that we Hmm. don't read, we don't pay attention. And I think that any person with a heart, uh, with a mind... A beating heart and a loving affection. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To know exactly what African Americans have been subjected to in our country... Mm be horrified. Do you know, there's, there's a fabulous book, um, The Warmth of Other Suns by Elizabeth mm-hmm. Wilkerson. Really mm-hmm. wonderful. And it's about the migration, the tremendous migration of African Americans from the South to the North. Millions. And she writes about how it, of course, there was an urgency for that move because these were people living in dire conditions, even post-slavery, where they were sharecroppers and whatnot. But the viciousness of local sheriffs and uh, and so forth, who would ban black people getting on the train to mm-hmm. go to freedom, would right. show up at the kind of right time that the train was about to take off and force off all of these families mm. from going north on the train. I mean, th- these conditions, it's it tears at the heart to talk about it. I think that that is what makes it difficult for people to listen to it. Right. But mm. we need a listening tour. Mm. Mm-hmm. If we're to honor Heather Heyer's death, that tragic killing just a couple weeks ago in Charlottesville, we will do honor to her legacy by actually listening and understanding what has been happening in our country for far too long for too many people. And it's not just African Americans. There are so many stories to be told. And they're the stories of poor white Americans. One of the cases that I teach every year to my students, and this is a case that cuts across the health 
health law that I teach. It cuts across constitutional law, torts, and so much. It's a case called Buck v. Bell, and it's a case that involves this United States Supreme Court in 1927 saying that it was ruling that it was permissible for the state of Virginia to forcibly sterilize a young woman who had been raped at 16 and had become pregnant. This launched the United States uh, campaign of eugenics, where poor white children as young as 9 and 10 years old were rounded up and sterilized. The thinking was these people should never be allowed to have children. And if we could get rid of, basically, poor white people in the United States, we'd only have the better breed of Americans. You can go on to the Library of Congress website. They have a photo library. And you can find this just by typing in eugenics uh, United States into databases. And you will see fitter family contests. And then what you will learn is that the eugenics law that was adopted in, ni- in the Nazi Germany was based on the very law that the U.S. Supreme Court said in 1927 was permissible. So when we understand that, then we understand the pain of people living in Appalachia and other parts of the country who, too, have also had a history that needs to be told and remembered. Michael and Michelle, I, am, I regret that our time is up. Oh, no. Thank you so much Kevin, for it's coming. it's been wonderful to be with you and your listening audience. Thank you so much. And thank you for being so thoughtful about wanting your audience to hear this conversation that we're having and also for being present at the event this afternoon. I continue to learn more as a black man. Uh, no, as a white man listening to... You can to go there. <laughs> <laughs> we know that race is a social construction. Yeah. <laughs> but I... I am learning. And, and we all are learning. We Kevin. all are. Things that I didn't know. You know, even like in this gener you know, this generation, hearing stories of prejudice from people who are you know, I hate to say be so naive, but today growing up not being able to stop at gas stations on vacation and their parents hiding it from them and having a different excuse of why they had to go in the bushes or whatever and um, it is a a discovery and thank you for saying that we're all learning Mm -hmm. and um, I really appreciate Michael would you be able to end us with your final song today or I would be happy to give you an excerpt from it to the songs I selected, the first was a Negro spiritual. I say Negro because it's the genre of song, and it's important to remember the African-American has come through a, a trajectory or an evolution of phraseology for who we are as people, and we've claimed to embrace that. The song I'm going to share is a piece from Ragtime. It's a small excerpt sung by Cole House Walker, who was from that piece. Go out and tell our story, let it echo far and wide. Make them hear you, make them hear you, and tell them in our story how justice was denied. Make them hear you, make them hear you, listeners, make them hear you. Thank you so much.